Okay. Yeah, let's get started. Uh, my name is Brent Evers, uh, one of the elders here. Probably have met most of you. I'd love to get to know all of you better, but uh, thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to just kind of introduce this class, introduce this subject material, introduce this book that we're going to be going through, and then um, encourage you probably to think about getting the book if you really want to kind of learn these concepts. The book is uh, by R.C. Sproul. It's called The Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. You can get it on Amazon, you can get it used, it's not very expensive, uh, but it's a great resource to have even, um, even after this class. R.C. Sproul, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Um, he wrote it in 1992, so it's a little bit dated, but it, it takes me back to, to back when I was uh, becoming a Christian in the late 80s, and um, interesting, uh, because it's about scripture, it's timeless, there's nothing new under the sun, we don't have to worry about it being... Uh, outdated if those truths are still true. R.C. Sproul, how many of you heard of R.C. Sproul? Yeah, I think most of us have. I, I was very blessed by his ministry uh, early on, and I've talked to many other folks who were. He's, um, he's a Reformed Presbyterian. He passed away in 2017, a very godly man, um, uh, started Ligonier Ministries, and, and he had a radio show called uh, Renewing Your Mind. And it's taken from that passage in Romans 12, 2, that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so he just is a great theologian. He was a great communicator. He could really teach in a way that uh, really practically helped us uh, learn God's word. So let me, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll get into it. So let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning and for the opportunity to gather as your people to um, gather in this class as we uh, desire to, to learn more about you, to learn more about your word, and uh, understand in ways that will help us become more like Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time today and, and just over the months ahead as we, as we uh, dive in and, and really meditate on these truths. Help us, Lord. Help you, I pray that your spirit would help us to, to grow and to learn. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so, I, um, three of the books that I just would mention that R.C. wrote that, I, that really helped me, and, and there's, there's, I don't know how many, there's probably a hundred books if you get online, but The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Um, there's another one called What's in the Bible that was really, really helpful for me early on, trying to understand all the different parts of the Bible, how they all fit together, Old Testament, New Testament, the different genres of writing. So anyway, I've given that book out a lot to new Christians. What's in the Bible by R.C. Sproul. Uh, Wolgamuth also helped him write that. And then Chosen by God is an excellent book. And when you really start to try to understand how God's sovereignty works in our salvation. So that's another great book by R.C. Sproul. <clears throat> so like I mentioned, this book was written in 1992. Um, and so our plan is to have different men teach through these different topics. There's 104 chapters, but each chapter is about two or three pages. So that gives you an idea how quickly we're just going to cover this subject material. Um, so each, each week, I'm thinking we're going to cover about four four topics or four chapters, so that's why the book will be nice. Uh, we're really going to use the book as our guide, so if you want, if you miss a week, you know, we're going to try to record them, but also the book will give you uh, the overview, it'll give you the summary points, and it also gives you 
usually four reference scriptural references that kind of cover that topic as well. So anyway, it's there's there's no tests, there's no final, so you guys can just listen and enjoy and and um, just build into your life. Let the Lord teach you, you know, these concepts that are going to serve you not only in this lifetime <clears throat> but into eternity. I've thought about this before, and, and as a when, a when when someone becomes a born again believer. Um, you know, Scripture tells us to redeem the time because the days are evil. And I remember I didn't become a Christian until my uh, mid-20s. And as I look back over my life and kind of regretted all the years of education that I'd had that was really not God-centered, no Christian education, and uh, really just kind of regretting the fact that I didn't get to have the opportunity to, uh, to learn from a Christian perspective, a Christian worldview. But that's part of the reason I got so motivated to be involved with Christian education, because I wanted that for my kids. I wanted them to be able to learn the world we live in from, from a Christian worldview. And so I uh, got involved with Faith, Faith Christian Academy early on and, and been really glad to be part of that for many years. Um, so from the preface, R.C. Sproul says this. He says... Every Christian is a theologian. And that may kind of rock your world a little bit here for a second if you think about that. Every Christian is a theologian. Um, We are always engaged in the activity of learning about the things of God. That's the hope that as we live this life and on into eternity, we will be eternal learners about the things of God. Theology means the study of God or the study of the nature of God. Most of us will never be professional teachers or academians or theologians, but for better or for worse, we are all theologians. For worse is no small matter. The Bible warns that heresies, which are beliefs that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture, if you ever hear people say that's heresy, that means something that goes against the teaching of Scripture. But the Bible says that heresies are destructive to the people of God. Blasphemies are speaking evil against God. So heresies and blasphemies are going, things are going against the, the teaching of God. In fact, 26 out of 27 books of the New Testament mention the dangers of false teaching. So that was obviously a big concern <clears throat> of the early church, of the early apostles. New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were very concerned about the dangers of false teaching in the church. And it continues on today. We still have many, many false teachers around and in the church. So we've got to be able to have some discernment, have some wisdom to to guard against that. Would you shut that door for me? Somebody just thinks. Um, God cares about his people and communicated through the scriptures the importance of knowing the truth about who he is. If we know the, the article, the original article, if we know Christ, if we know Scripture, then we are able to recognize false teaching. I remember years ago somebody telling me that how do, how do experts on counterfeit currency get so good? They study the original and they know it so well that when they see a counterfeit bill, they don't have to wonder, oh, is this? No, I know the truth so well that I can recognize the false. The Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. That may seem a little strange to us if we think about that. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. 
It sounds, it seems to confuse the mind and the heart. Thinking is for the brain, right? And, and feeling is for the heart. But it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. To think in the heart refers to thoughtful reflection. It's not just a passing thought that you never really get into your, into your heart. But those ideas that go deep are the ones that shape our lives. You've heard, we are what we eat. Well, actually, we are what we think. We are what we think. There are very smart people who have high degrees in theology and live godless lives. People can affirm a sound theology and live an unsound life. Sound theology is not enough to live a godly life, but it's still a prerequisite for godly living. How can we live the truth? How can we do the truth if we don't understand what the truth is? So it certainly is foundational for the Christian life. Um, No Christian can avoid theology. He says every Christian has a theology. The real issue is, do we have a sound theology? Do we have a biblical theology? Do we embrace true or false doctrine? To understand the Bible's message, we must first understand the concepts by which the message is set forth. So the purpose of this class is to introduce to you the key concepts that together make up the biblical message. Key concepts that will help us understand the Bible's message. Like I said, there's over 100 concepts that will give us a basic understanding of theology. Obviously not in depth. But this is an overview that will serve us well as we live the Christian life now and, like I said, on into eternity. We will be eternal learners. Uh, Just even if we're doing it for this life alone, some young folks in here, you're going to be around, hopefully, Lord willing, for decades. And so what a blessing it is to establish and to continue to learn the things of God for this lifetime. But as believers, guess what? We're going to be in heaven one day, and we are going to get unencumbered by these bodies, this forgetful mind and these distractedness and the things that cause us to uh, forget or to, to, to get distracted by the, the, the best things. So I get excited about thinking about being eternal learners. So I, I hope that, that that excites you too. Um, he, he quotes a study from the 1980s, which sounds like a long time ago for, for you, some of you. A study in the 1980s that found that a high percentage of Americans back then claimed to be Christian and believed that the Bible was the Word of God. Counterbalancing this fact, however, was the clear revelation that Americans, even evangelical believers, were woefully ignorant of the content of Scripture and even more ignorant of the history of Christian and theology. So even back in the 1980s, when people would say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, they really became, it became evident when you asked them some questions, they really didn't know what they were talking about when it came to Christianity. The clear message of that study was that the Christian faith was making little or no difference in the lives of these people and in American culture. How can this be? <clears throat> well, one possibility is that perhaps many of those who said or thought they had had a conversion experience were mistaken. Or maybe they were lying about their conversion. Uh, In the uh, 1800s and then on into the 1900s, what became popular in cultural Christianity was the invitation. At the end of a church service, 
a pastor or a preacher or evangelist would, would make an invitation saying, everybody come forward who wants to become a Christian. And they would have them pray a prayer, a, a special magic little prayer that once you prayed that prayer, you were in the faith. No doubt about it, you are saved. But the dangers of that is <clears throat> it could be an emotional response. It could be manipulation that they've followed. Um, the evidence of our salvation isn't looking back at a prayer we prayed. The evidence of our salvation is, do I love the Lord today? And am I walking with him today? Am I obeying him? So um, Phineasm, uh, Billy Graham, you know, guys that really probably the Lord used in some ways to save some people really had a lot of dangers. And I've heard it said that Billy Graham really realized that most of the conversions that he saw were false conversions, that the people had no interest in the things of God. I even talked to people who would say, well, you know, my son prayed a prayer when he was six. Of course, since high school, he hasn't been back to church, and now he's in his 40s. But he's saved because he prayed that prayer. And I think sometimes those are people holding on to a, a false system of assurance. It's better, honestly, and we see in the studies today that we want people to recognize you're not a Christian. You know, you may think you're a Christian, but you're not a Christian. And so then we you know how to deal with them. We can say, wait a second, if you're not a Christian, then here's the gospel. Here's the hope of the gospel. You're a sinner. You can be saved by grace if you trust Christ. So, like I said, most more recent studies show a much lower percentage of people claiming to be born again. And um, the, the numbers keep rising that say they have no religion at all. So really, we are a very post-Christian nation. So our concern in this class is to challenge each of us to grow in our Christian faith, to not remain in spiritual infancy, but to grow in spiritual maturity and to have a strong impact on the family, the community, the nation, and the world, to be salt and light in this world. Um, so for true spiritual revival and reformation to happen in our lives, Several barriers must be overcome. It's important for Christians to understand that these causes can work against the goal of our maturity. And so in the introduction, R.C. Sproul lists, I think, maybe 10 different barriers to why Christians don't grow in their faith. I'm not going to cover all 10, but I'm going to cover some of them that I thought were pretty interesting. So the first barrier or the first cause that might keep us from growing in our faith, he calls it the childlike faith error. Childlike faith error. Mark 10 15 says this Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. In some Christian minds, this call to childlike faith has been elevated to a spiritual ideal that distorts the biblical meaning of faith. The New Testament does describe a certain childlike faith as a virtue. But what is this childlike faith? Well, the word like is the clue, it's an analogy. Like a child, as little children trust their parents and take them at their word, so we are to trust God. A young child's life is totally dependent on his parents for food, safety, everything. As God's children, we are to forever remain in this childlike trust and respect of our Heavenly Father. God deserves to be trusted, and the mature Christian never outgrows this sort of childlike faith. There is a vast difference, however, between childlike faith and childish faith. These can be confused. A childish faith resists, resists learning the things of God in depth. It refuses the meat of the gospel 
and clings to a diet of milk. Listen to this passage out of Hebrews. Hebrews 5. 12 through 14 says this, For for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The analogy of a baby needing milk to drink, that's all babies do, but, but they don't stay there. They grow into maturity, and then they need solid food. So it's the analogy of a Christian a baby Christian needing just basic things, but that as we grow, we are to grow in our understanding, in our meals, in the, in the, in the Word of God. So this is the call of the New Testament to maturity. Listen to this, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians thirteen eleven. The Apostle Paul says this, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul makes a further distinction between the way in which we are to remain as babes and the way in which we are called to adulthood. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So he makes a distinction. He doesn't want us to grow in our adulthood of sin. He says, be evil, I mean, be, be um, infants in your evil, but in your thinking grow into adulthood. Okay? Christian culture has created a large number of stagnant Christian children through, I believe, the seeker movement. For years I was involved with the church, the type of church uh, that Bill Hybels built up in Willow, Willow Creek in Chicago where uh, the idea was to try to evangelize, try to reach lost people by having a Sunday morning service that was real casual, real shallow, maybe don't do too much Bible because that might be offensive, um, Pick a relevant topic that you could talk about that maybe get a little bit of scripture in there. Well, those guys, those types of churches influence churches all around the world. And we see it, uh, we're seeing the fruit of it. In fact, it's, it can be pretty discouraging. In fact, we just interviewed a, a young man, he's about 27 or so, who's joining our church. And um, he'd grown up in a church like this. And he somehow got invited or he met somebody and, and he came to our church and, and, and started reading and started listening to other uh, church services or, or, or preachers. And he was just kind of bummed. He was just really kind of frustrated. It's like, I've spent my whole life in church and I don't know any of this stuff. He's, I, I, I talked to him about the fact that I realized for a while too, we've been splashing around on the surface of Christianity, you know, playing in the water and now it's time to put on scuba gear and go deep. You know, it's like Christianity is not just all fun and games and it's not just shallow. It's, it's not a social club that we show up and hang out and have our friends. And it's time to go deep because the things of this world, we are seeing a progression, a deterioration like, like I don't think we've, not my lifetime, how quickly we're on the slippery slope of deterioration. Um, so it's, it's not to be goofed around with. We really need to understand our Bibles. We need to be in a a serious relationship with the Lord and with each other. Um, So that's a danger. I think a lot of people in the past, and and maybe not as much now, but but has 
have had false assurance by praying a prayer that's not even in the Bible. Another hindrance to growth into Christian maturity is a term that was popular back in the 80s, and it's still around. I'll, I'll explain it to you. It's called easy believism. Easy believism. It's a modern form of the ancient heresy called antinomianism. Antinomianism means anti, against. Nomos means law. So it's against the law. It's, it says that, it's been around for, for, for many, many years, antinomianism thinking is that it's all of grace. Grace has saved you, but once you're saved, you really don't need to worry about keeping any law. You don't need to worry about the New Testament or the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's all of grace. It really is, uh, becomes hyper-grace or cheap grace. Um, and that's not the teaching of Scripture. They would, they would assert that once a person makes a decision for Christ, prays a prayer to become a, 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 a Christian, it's not necessary to embrace him as Lord. They talked about the difference between being a Christian and then lordship salvation. I don't know if you've heard any of this before. Um, and when you create those categories, I think it's partly because people were praying these prayers and had no evidence of their salvation, but, well, but they're still a Christian, so now they're calling people like that carnal Christians. Have you heard of that term? Carnal Christians say, well, you're a Christian, but you're living in the flesh which there's no category for this in Scripture. Um, one author corrects it by saying it this way. The goal of every Christian is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. This includes obeying the Lord, because those who love him will obey his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Yet believers have been set apart to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says to do the works God has prepared for you to do ahead of time. So he saves you by grace. He saves you to work. Carnality in a Christian opposes all of this. So just settle into a point where it's like, you know what? I'm going to live like I want to live. I'm safe. I'm, I'm, I've got fire insurance. I've heard people say, you know, I'm not going to hell. I'm going to They don't understand scripture. It's really a dangerous place to be. <clears throat> To be a Christian, in the biblical sense of the word, is to be a disciple of Christ. Disciple means learner, to be a learner in Christ. We enroll in the school of Christ. The disciple, as the name suggests, is called to a disciplined study. Discipline, study of the things of God. A disciple disciplines himself for the things of God. Okay, another barrier to Christian growth. Fear of controversies. Fear of controversy. I remember hearing years ago, doctrine divides. Be careful with doctrine. It divides. <clears throat> yes, theology does breed controversy. There's no question about it. Most Christians I know desire peace and unity in our relationships. That's a good thing, right? In fact, the Bible forbids us from being contentious, divisive, and even judgmental. Fruit of the Spirit is being gentle and meek, patient and kind, right? Our reasoning may go like this. If we are to avoid a quarrelsome spirit and exhibit the fruit of the spirit, we must avoid the study of theology. You've probably heard the old saying, never discuss religion or politics in polite conversation. But the reality is, theological commitment leads to controversy. When we read the Bible, we see that Jesus' very life was a storm of controversy. And the apostles, like the prophets before them, could hardly go a day without controversy. The Apostle Paul said he debated daily in the marketplace. 
So to avoid controversy is to essentially to avoid Christ. We are to avoid godless controversies, but not godly controversies. It's okay for Christians to have discussions about theology and wrestle with the questions that have high eternal consequences. Passions can rise because the stakes are high. It's often godless controversies, not because the combatants know too much. A lot of times when people know just enough to be dangerous, that's where they get really into debates and, and, and unhelpful arguments. Um, they fail to discern between the weighty matters of dispute and minor points that should never divide us. Secondary issues we can, we can talk about. We can have disagreements about. Eschatology would be a, a great example of something that, you know what? Great Christians over many, many years have seen things differently in Scripture. And then sometimes you change your mind. So you don't divide over those things. You just discuss them and, 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 and talk about them. But um, the, more, the more you study theology, I think the more you'll be able to discern what issues are negotiable and tolerable, and what issues demand that we really put our foot down. There are certain things, basic truths of the gospel, basic truths of scripture that we aren't going to compromise or settle on. Another barrier to growing in our knowledge of theology is the anti-intellectual culture in which we live. We live in an anti-intellectual culture. Um, Dr. Sproul says that we have become a sensuous nation. We live in a period that is Allergic to rationality. He said that back in the 19, early 1990s. Um, anti-intellectual means against the mind. We're a feeling culture, not as much a thinking culture. How, I mean, I remember hearing this, and now you just hear it all the time. I mean, sometimes I even catch myself saying, I feel that this, or... I feel this, and really we mean I think. There's a difference between feeling and thinking, and we need to understand the difference. So I feel sad or I feel whatever, that's one thing, but I think this or I think that. And so I think we've gotten where we kind of tiptoe around a little bit about what we think and what we feel. I guess if you say you feel something like you're going to be less judgmental, maybe people are going to, aren't going to um, be as hard on you because it's, oh, that's your personal thinking. Um, but there is a difference between feeling and thinking. And both are supremely important in the Christian faith. <clears throat> the heart, our feeling, is, is of utmost importance. I have, if I have correct doctrine in my head, but no love for Christ in my heart, I've missed the kingdom of God. It's infinitely more important that my heart be right before God than that my theology be impeccably correct. However, like we said earlier, for my heart to be right, it must be informed. I must think. How can I love a God or a Jesus that I know nothing about? The more I come to understand the character of God, the greater is my capacity to love him. So God reveals himself to us in a book, the Bible. The book of books. The book that is written in words. It communicates concepts that must be understood by the mind. But the purpose of God's revelation is that we understand it with our minds so that we might, it might penetrate our hearts. So the mind and the heart are both key to us growing in our understanding of the Word of God and to know God more deeply. To neglect the study of theology is to neglect learning the Word of God. Oh, Another barrier is the seduction of worldliness. The seduction of worldliness. Um, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress or heard about that book? 
It's a classic Christian book that I highly recommend to you. But so Christian is on a journey to the celestial city. So he's on this path of being converted to Christ to get to heaven. And his first obstacle is a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Worldliness seduces us in terms of sensuality, materialism, hedonism. Hedonism means pleasure-seeking and others. We certainly live in a world culture that does all of that. But one of the most powerfully seductive forces of the secular world is the temptation to embrace its view of truth. Relativism. The relativism infiltrated and took over the modern educational system years ago. And now the American mind has been closed, has become closed to the fact that we can know truth. We can know absolute truth. They think all truth is relative. Your truth, my truth, they can coexist, even if they are totally at odds with each other. But relativism is actually irrational when we think about it. Even the statement, all truth is relative, they would say it's, it's, it's not even a truthful statement because they, they, don't, they don't believe you can make, a, make true statements. So taken to its logical conclusion, it, that makes no sense at all, and yet it's pervasive. It's everywhere in our culture. So the good news is we have Scripture, it's absolute truth, and it's not changing. As the culture changes and tries to find its way, we can go back to Scripture and say, you know what, we know what absolute truth is, and we don't have to wonder. Um, there are people that even over time that have uh, said they've been led by the Spirit to do things that are explicitly, explicitly prohibited in the Scripture. Doing things like as Christians to say, well, you know, the Lord led me to meet this extra, this other person, and so I had to leave my spouse. And it's like, no, Scripture says one thing, and we, we don't have to wonder what truth is. So don't be deceived by the relative thinking of our world. There is absolute truth. And it's found in the Word of God. <clears throat> Another hindrance that he mentions is substituting devotional reading for Bible study. Devotional reading for Bible study. He asks this question. He says, is it possible that devotional reading of the Bible can be a hindrance to Christian growth? And he says, yes, if it becomes a substitute for serious study of the Word. You know, you may not have a lot of time to really spend a lot of time in Bible study, but I encourage you to, when you do get in the Word, don't, don't feel like it's a, <clears throat> a check mark that you've got to mark each day and say, you know what, I've got to be in the Word 15 minutes or whatever it is. That's great to be in the Word at least 15 minutes a day, but don't feel like you've got to read a certain amount or whatever. Really ask the Lord to meet you in your time of Bible study, and maybe you're going to get through maybe a verse. I've had that where I don't have a lot of time, but I'm just going to really thoughtfully read uh, maybe even the proverb of the day. You know, So if there's 30, 30 average of 30 days in a month, there's, pro there's 30 proverbs, 31 proverbs. So you can um, pick the proverb, you know, if it's the, what's today, the first. Look at Proverbs 1 and just meditate on that proverb. So we can talk more about that, but I just encourage you to really let the, the Holy Spirit teach you as you meditate and read and memorize the Word of God. Short times in the Word can be helpful, but really mastery of the Bible will only come as we seriously study it, which takes commitment and time. Um, find a friend, find some other people to spend some time just really reading and meditating on the Bible. Um, 
short times are helpful, but it's not an adequate substitute for for actually studying it. I have a, a, a book um, that Owen Strand uh, wrote on uh, daily devotions with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was an early um, amazing uh, theologian, preacher in our country's early history in the 1700s. And so he takes a quote from some of uh, Edwards' um, writings or, pre- or sermons, and then he writes a little blurb, and then there's always a, a, a passage of Scripture at the bottom. And I, I really do enjoy that. But I don't want to let that be my substitute for my time in the Word. Because then from there, I want to grab my Bible, and maybe I'll look at the passage that maybe it, it touched on there. But just really find ways for you to spend quality time in the Bible. And I promise you won't regret it. You won't. Uh, the last couple of barriers to our Christian growth come from within us. First one is laziness. Slothfulness is the word. Our rebirth in Christ does not immediately and fully take us away from these bodies of flesh that we live in. Uh, we still have sin, and so laziness is still a thing we probably have to battle. The Christian life requires hard work. Our sanctification is a process where we are co-workers with God. We have the promises of God's assistance in our labor, but his divine help does not take away our responsibility to work. That's where the antinomians antinomians get it wrong. Listen to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So this work of working out our salvation, it doesn't say work for your salvation. We're justified by faith in Christ alone. But then it says work out your salvation. Salvation is the process of being changed. And we'll talk about those terms later. Working out. So God is doing it in our, in our lives but he does it through our work. It's an interesting thing to meditate on that passage of Scripture, and, and then we'll learn more about that. Um, lazy Christians will remain immature because they fail to apply themselves to a diligent study of God's Word. And then the last hindrance we'll mention is disobedience. Disobedience. It's imperative that we press beyond whatever obstacles in our path to a diligent pursuit of deeper theological understanding. So those are the reasons why, that attack us, that keep us from growing in our study of theology. Here's a couple of positive reasons to motivate us to do it. First, theology feeds the soul. For the soul of a person to be inflamed with passion for the living God, our mind must be informed about the character and will of God. Just like we talked about, there's nothing that's going to be in our heart, a love of God, unless we first in our mind know God and understand him. Um, it's possible to have, like I said, there's, there's academians who know a lot about Scripture, know a lot of doctrine, but they are just not born again. They don't have it in their heart. He, he said, as oxygen is necessary but not sufficient to light a fire, so doctrine is necessary but not sufficient to light a fire in our hearts. Without the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the mere presence of doctrine, even sound doctrine, will leave us cold. Uh, the other reason that we're to pursue uh, theology is that God commands it. God, who is the subject matter of theology, commands us to progress in doctrinal understanding. Paul exhorts us to put away childish things in 1 Corinthians 13, so that we might press forward to the goal of Christian understanding. In evil, we are to be babes, but in the understanding, 
we seek mature adulthood, understanding God and his word. Theology is really a matter of life and death, even eternal life and death. So this class is really intended to give you an overview of these issues of great importance. So, any questions? I gotta just, I'm going to cover chapter 1 here briefly. Any thoughts or questions so far? So chapter 1, oh yeah, go ahead. Um, quick question. You, yeah. you actually, so I've heard that quote like when people talk about adults who hold on to their kids' decisions when they're mm-hmm. sick. Mm-hmm. You've met people who confidently say that. Yeah. I've only heard... It's sad. That. It really is because it's like you want to just... You empathize with them because they're trying to comfort themselves, saying, "Well, my my adult child, they, they know better. You know, they're they're living in sin, but they know better. They, and, and it's just like, no, you're probably better off saying they're lost. I'm going to pray for their salvation. I'm going to pray that God does whatever it takes to humble them and break them and bring them to Christ. That's a healthier way to deal with that. Yeah. 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 So, chapter one of this book is called Divine Revelation. Divine revelation. Everything we know about Christianity has been revealed to us by God. Thankfully, he's given us information. It's been unveiled. A cover has been removed. Without God revealing himself to us, we are in the dark. The Bible indicates that God reveals to himself to, to us in various ways. He displays his glory in and through nature. I mean, you see a beautiful sunset. You see... Uh, the beauty of creation, and how can you not think that there's a God who created that? So he reveals himself through nature. Um, in ancient times, he revealed himself via dreams and visions of the prophets. That's how he revealed himself to the prophets, prophets who we have our Old Testament books. He, so he reveals himself through scripture, and then ultimately, the zenith of his revelation is seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was incarnated, He put on flesh, he became a human being, and that's the best understanding we have of who God is, is through Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 1, first two verses of Hebrews 1. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world's. God has revealed himself primarily in two ways. There's two types of revelation. General revelation and special revelation. So general revelation comes to all people, all times. And so we could call it that uh, there's two categories. Um, It's general in content and it's general in its audience. General in its content in that that general revelation provides us with the knowledge that God does exist. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says. You look into the sky, you look into the night sky, the, the, the depth of the constellation, just everything we see screams that there's a God who created that. God's glory is displayed in the works of his hands. This, this display is so clear that no creature can possibly miss it. It displays God's eternal power and deity. Listen to Romans 1. This is a good passage for it to explain this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because, listen to this, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. And those would be idols. That's Romans 1, 18 through 23. So revelation in nature does not give us a full revelation of God. I mean, that's why we do missions. There are people in, 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 in tribes around the world that they can see the grandeur of the creation, but they still need the gospel. They're getting general revelation, but they're not getting special revelation. Um, so the general audience is not everyone in the world has read the Bible or heard the gospel proclaimed, but the light of nature shines upon everyone in every place in every time. He, uh, Dr. Sproul says that the visible world is like a mirror that reflects the glory of its makers. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. Nature itself is powerless to produce life of any kind. The power to produce life results in the, is, resides in the author of nature, Almighty God. To substitute nature as the source of life is to confuse the creature with the creator. So many people worship the creation, not the creator. All forms of nature worship are acts of idolatry that are detestable to God. Atheism, however, believes that there is no God. Atheist, without God. There's, that's why the Bible says, um, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what, that's what God says about that. You're a fool if you say there is no God, Psalm 14.1. Proverbs also says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, so that the denial of God is the height of foolishness. The agnostic likewise, denies the force of general revelation. And he doesn't flatly deny the existence of God, but he declares that there's not a sufficient evidence to decide one way or the, uh, the other. There's that word Gnostic again, without knowledge, not being able to know there is a God. But he's still culpable before God. Uh, in the light of the clarity of general revelation, agnosticism is no less detestable to God than that of the militant atheist. But for those who have eyes to see, for those of us who have been born again, we've received special revelation. The glory of God is wonderful to us. It's like Peter when Jesus said, you know, people are leaving me. The disciples were with him and they said, that he, Jesus asked the disciples, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter goes, you have words of eternal life. I mean, we've seen that you are the son of God. Where else would we go? And that's what happens when a born again believer sees Christ for who he is, sees the Bible for being the word of God. And you'd like, where else would we go? Once we've seen the truth of eternity and uh, Christ for who he is, where else would we go? Psalm 19, I'm going to just commend that to you. If you want to read Psalm 19 in your quiet time sometime, just read that, meditate on that about general and special revelation. So the heavens are declaring the glory of God, but then special revelation happens, happens to the psalmist as he sees Christ for who he is and he wants to respond to him as Lord. 
Okay, that's all I have today. Questions, any comments, anything else that you'd like to mention? I, we're going to really try to keep it to 45 minutes so you'll have time to get to uh, you know, fellowship a little bit and then get to, to the service. So I, I encourage you to get the book. And uh, like I said, next week, Stephen Freeland is going to cover the next three or four chapters. So if you want to read ahead and be thinking about some of those topics, you certainly could do that. Yes? Yes, right here. R.C. Sproul, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Yes. Get used on Amazon for 10 bucks, I think. Plus shipping. There's an audio. I got the audio as well. I've really enjoyed just listening to it, too. It's not R.C. Uh, saying, I, I wish it was, because uh, I love his voice, but uh, it, it's still good. Let me pray for us and we'll be finished. Father, thanks for our time. Just a lot of information. Lord, I, help, I pray that you'd help us to uh, put this information into our minds and, and to think about it, but also let it sink into our hearts where we are just going to fall more in love with our Savior day by day and for the rest of our lives and, and on into eternity. I pray that you'd bless the, the, the gathering for our worship service. I pray that you would be with us now, now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.